A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I am really excited that we um, can approach and 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 focus uh, tonight on the climate security nexus. Um, for those among us, like myself, who come from classic foreign policy and uh, classic uh, security and defense uh, discussions, climate and the climate security nexus uh, looks like something entirely new, but I'm, but I'm happy to say that um, it wasn't this year that we discovered that climate can be and should be and must be regarded as an important issue in the context of, of security. If you accept a wider interpretation of security than just classic military security. For example, in the context of the Munich Security Conference, which I have the, the privilege of, of organizing each year, we have consistently put climate issues on the agenda in different ways. We even gave um, our annual award, which went in earlier years to people like Henry Kissinger uh, or to Helmut Schmidt. We gave our award uh, to um, uh, those who made the Paris Climate uh, Agreement happen. Um, uh, namely Laurent Fabius and Patricia Espinosa Gantelano. Uh, so um, uh, I'm really happy that we have this uh, event here tonight. And um, I will introduce what I think is a really brilliant panel in just a minute. But before I do that, I would like to offer the floor to uh, the chairman, or is it president, of the German Association for the United Nations. I'm really pleased, uh, Trempitsky, you have the floor, and then we'll start the proceedings. Thank you, Mr. Eschinger. I also would like to welcome you all on behalf of the United Nations Association of Germany. I would like to thank the Center for International Security at the Hertie School for the cooperation on this event, and especially Professor Wolfgang Ischinger, who will share this discussion. And of course, I would like to welcome and to thank our speakers today. We are very glad that we have brought together both experts and security policy as well as on climate change. Professor Ottmar Edelhofer, director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, Dr. Nina von Uxkull, Assistant Professor at the Department of Peace and Conflict Research at Uppsala University, Dr. Karl-Heinz Kamp, Special Envoy of the Political Director in the German Ministry of Defense and former President of the Federal Academy for Security Policy. Bax is a name we know. Climate change is a defining issue of our time. It is increasingly considered 
a security threat with potentially far-reaching implications for the geostrategic environment. A few days ago, more than 11,000 scientists from 153 states have declared the climate to be in a state of emergency. If nothing changes, they have argued the consequences will be terrible. For example, large-scale migration or increasing conflicts over national resources can be fostered by climate change and do not only impact the personal security of the affected people, but also the viability of states and international security. As you may know, Germany was elected as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council for the term 2019 to 2020. Germany has announced that next to several other subjects, including, for example, the agenda on women, peace and security, climate-related security implications will be one focus of the German membership, particularly in the year 2020. Even though links to climate change have slowly started to enter resolutions of the Security Council in recent years. The extent to which climate-related security risks should be addressed by the United Nations Security Council remains controversial. And there still is a lack of clarity what concrete actions can be taken to address climate-related security risks. There is a need to substantiate. What course of action does the Security Council have? What consideration needs to be given to climate change and conflict prevention? And how does climate change impact peacekeeping operations? These are only three examples of questions that come into mind when we are talking about climate change and security. We hope that this event and contribute to the discussion about concrete security relation actions on climate change and substantiate what are potential and consistent consequences of defining climate change as a security issue. Thanks again, and I am now looking forward to existing insights from the discussion. Take the floor. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for actually doing most of the job that I I would have been supposed to undertake. Now, uh, the three panelists have already been introduced, if 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 only briefly, and and you outlined also some of the larger uh, issues. So thank you thank you uh, very much. The, what we will be doing now for the next uh, hour and ten minutes or so is to listen to. Uh, initial statements from all three panelists. Um, and then we will hopefully have uh, 20 minutes, maybe even half an hour, for, uh, for Q&A. So brace yourself for the possibility of asking questions or making comments. This should be hopefully an interactive uh, event. What I propose is that we start with Professor Edenhofer because he is sort of the uh, incarnation of German-based 
climate research. Uh, Professor, Professor Edenhofer runs the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which is, uh, I think, known far beyond the, 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 the borders of, uh, of Germany as one of the principal institutions of research in the matter. And then we'll go to Nina von Uxkel and and to the more generalist comments from a classic security person like Karl-Heinz Kamp to um, broaden the picture and to complete the picture. So without further ado, uh, Professor Edenhofer, if you want to start our discussion with your comments, and uh, we discussed uh, earlier that um, these introductory statements should uh, not be longer than maximum 10 minutes or so. Please, you have the floor. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for the invitation and uh, for the opportunity to bring together uh, climate people and security people, because it is very timely to think uh, in a new way about uh, uh, climate and the security issues. And I will organize my few minutes in the following way. First of all, I will categorize the impacts of climate change on security issues. But we should not forget that climate policy in itself has a, an impact on, on, on security policies. Now, let me start with the climate impacts. Currently, we are on a pathway of the four degree which basically means that we are on a pathway where we increase the global mean temperature in an unprecedented way. And nobody knows exactly what will happen when we increase the global mean temperature around 4 degrees. What we can do is we can try to find risk categories. And let me organize this in the following way. And it's not a comprehensive overview of climate impacts, they go far beyond the security issues. But uh, in the relation to the security issues, I would categorize them in the following way. The first one is forced migration. The second one is the likelihood uh, to increase ethnical conflicts in fragmented and polarized societies. The risk to, in, to reduce the state capacity further and therefore to increase the risk of failing states and the last, the loss of national territory. So this is basically the climate impact side. Now let me start with the with forced migration. So we are on a, I told you that we are on a four degree pathway. And this would mean basically in Latin America alone, Africa and in South Asia, we will see by 2050 roughly 100 million people within the uh, the southern hemisphere, uh, which are forced by, uh, by, by, uh, by climate policy to migrate. So this is a huge number, and uh, this is basically something which we have to think about very, very carefully. The second aspect are ethnic conflicts. And even under the current state, extreme events, current state means even in a two-degree pathway, we will see an increased likelihood of extreme events. For example, the El Nino uh, effect, which basically uh, increases droughts in countries like uh, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and, 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 and the Philippines. So what happens when basically extreme events are occurring? Think about water resources. Many, many water resources in many countries are a kind of common pool resources. They can only be managed 
by more than one group. If you think about an, an ethnically fragmented society or an ethnically polarized society, it is very hard then to convince people uh, to continue the management of common pool resources. When common pool resources are under threat because of climate change, so then the likelihood of ethnic conflicts are increased substantially. I'm not arguing that there's a drought and the drought leads to an ethnic conflict. But what we can see is the more common pool resources are affected by climate change, the more or the higher is the likelihood that ethnic conflicts uh, will increase. The, last as the, the, the third aspect is basically the reduction of state capacity. Think about Nigeria. In Nigeria, for example, because of droughts, because of the requirement of the management of the common pool resources, the state capacity is decreasing to manage this in a, in a reasonable way, to provide the people the security they need. Again, it's not to say that here is an extreme, there an extreme event, there are increasing droughts, and therefore we will see uh, failing states and decreasing state capacity, but again, it is harder, it is more complicated, it is more demanding for weak states to provide security to the citizens. And the last aspect, because of, in particular because of sea level rise, we will see in many parts of the world, uh, in particular the small island states, that they will lose the national territory. You might say, oh, in small island states only a few people are affected. But nevertheless, this is a big issue for countries when the national territory is disappearing, and then the question is how to compensate small island states, financial compensation or to provide them uh, in other countries some kind of territory. Well, that's, that's probably not in terms of numbers, but in terms of rights, in terms of uh, 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 identity and dignity, that's a reason uh, for concern. So this, is, this basically would be my categorization the impact of climate change on the security issue. But we should not underestimate the other part, which is the impact of climate policy on security issues. What does this mean? And let me start here with a very concrete example, which is uh, in particular important for Europe. Europe has a, a very interesting way to regulate and to implement climate policies and this is a very bureaucratic name. And this bureaucratic name is the European Effort Sharing Regulation. Even if you have never heard about this, you should be interested in this issue. Because the European Effort Sharing Regulation is probably the most important component for the next decade in the European climate policy. What does this mean? There's an agreement among all the EU member states that uh, emissions will be reduced roughly by... Uh, 40% by 2030 in, the, in uh, uh, buildings, heating, and transport. So far, so good. But now it's the first time that basically this European effort-sharing regulation requires that we reduce our oil demand and gas demand significantly. Admittedly, German's climate package, we decided to start with 10 euros. That's not a big concern. But nevertheless, by 2030, we need a significant reduction of emissions in the transport sector and the heating sector and the building sector. And this has a, a very simple implication. We have to reduce our demand on oil and gas. So the European effort-sharing regulation is not just an aspirational goal. 
This is basically a, 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 a European law which is endowed with sanctions. When a country cannot fulfill the obligation, the country has to pay a penalty to other states, which basically means this is a quite tough regulation. And in Germany, we will see uh, in the next few years significant uh, expenditures for this kind of penalties. But let me shed light on some ge geopolitical implications. I will not go into all the details. What are the geopolitical implications? First, when we basically price oil, this basically means we tax away some of the oil rents from the Middle East and in particular from Saudi Arabia. So that's the fundamental insight. So this will change our relationship to Saudi Arabia and to Russia. When we basically tax explicitly or implicitly gas, we tax the gas rents from Russia. And here I would argue that Russia has to understand what's going on, and I'm sure that Russia is analyzing very, very carefully what we are doing in Europe now. The first thing is, I would argue, it's a huge advantage for Russia, because this taxation or this pricing of gas allows Russia to diversify their own economy. So they shouldn't be too concerned, but nevertheless, this needs some kind of communication. This needs some kind of explanation what we are doing, and the same with the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. So that's, that's basically the oil, the relationship to the oil exporting and the gas exporting countries. The last aspect is even more important. So if you look at the world map and you think about what will happen when in one way or another we will price carbon around the globe, very roughly, very roughly, uh, you can come up with the following conclusion. The competitiveness of countries like Europe and the US will be increased. They are quite efficient. They can do, they can decarbonize their power sector quite easily. Some of them have already started to do this. And they increase the international competitiveness. But the international competitiveness issue will be reduced in some parts of South Asia. It has an impact on India. And it depends how China responds to this kind of policies. So in the end, uh, this will basically create additional tensions. These tensions can be handled in a way that we provide uh, knowledge, we provide institutions to help other countries to decarbonize, in particular their power sector. But also, we need basically some kind of international transfer schemes to support the smaller countries to do this. Otherwise, climate policy will have or will, will create or induce conflicts which are very hard to handle. So these are the both, uh, the both uh, parts of the equation, both sides of the coin. This has to be taken into account very carefully, otherwise we will fail with our climate policy. On the other hand, I deeply believe these things can be handled, this can be managed, and in the end, climate policy uh, has a huge potential to increase, to increase also global security and the other way around. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, lots of food for thought. Uh, but we'll go directly to Nina von Utskul, who comes from... Di uh, she's the one with the longest trip, because she came directly from Uppsala today, where she teaches at the uh, university. She's also associated with the uh, Norwegian 
Peace Research Institute in Oslo, and um, she has done a lot of work on security implications of climate change, but she's also worked on armed conflicts in sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, you have the floor, Nina. Uh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here uh, and to speak to this audience. Um, I would like to focus specifically on the topics that I have done the most research on, on really and focus on not global tensions, but focusing on internal armed conflict and starting with the title of this, uh, this event, which was called uh, The Missing Links. Because, in fact, when we look into the academic debate about the security implication of climate change, uh, there was a lot of debate on how, how important climate actually is, and there was a lot of research coming up in the, in the past years addressing these questions. So if you look into the latest IPCC report, it still says, so there are inconsistent links to, to armed conflict. I think um, at this point in time, we are actually coming further. And we actually have some answers and we have fixed some of these links and I would like to talk about them. Uh, briefly, so talking about cases like Syria, talking about cases like pastoralist fightings in, in the Sahel. So first of all, I think we now see uh, in all these studies that have been done looking into drought impacts on unarmed conflict at the global level, but also looking into household service, trying to disentangle uh, this mechanism, looking into cases like Syria, um, that we see overall that uh, climate seems to, climate-related factors seem to rather increase than decrease the risk of armed conflict. So climate seems to matter. Second, we also uh, see a bit more nuanced where uh, climate-related factors seem to matter. So we see that conflict-affected uh, societies are the ones that are most vulnerable. If you think about cases like Somalia, we have studies there on livestock shocks, for example. Um, things, uh, think of cases like, like the Philippines. We also see that um, low economic development is important to account for, uh, not only because countries are poor and maybe don't lack the, the uh, cap capabilities to address shocks, but also because a large part of the population is reliant on agriculture, which, which is an important uh, sector when it comes to climate and it is so sensitive to impacts of drought, for example. And lastly, we see um, that climate-related shocks, and there's mostly um, research on drought actually, uh, matters where uh, we have failing institutions in some sense. So we have survey research, for example, showing that on people that do not trust the government, people in areas where we don't have functioning resource regulating institutions, that, that it is in these um, circumstances where climate-related factors matter. But lastly, and I think this is important, we also uh, get to, to see a picture of how important climate-related factors are for armed conflict in current societies. And that we're talking about current societies here is, I think, important from a conflict prevention perspective and also about thinking about what are the factors we really can address with our policies here and now. The question how important climate as a driver of conflict is, is, is a difficult one, of course. If you think about all the conflicts in the world, if you think about Syria, this is not one cause, and we cannot attribute this one cause to climate, so there are no climate wars in that sense. And we also need to acknowledge that there are climate Climate change, climate-related variability have indirect impacts on things that matter for conflict, but that maybe, maybe it's not the next day the drought occurs, uh, we see the conflict arising. 
So in response to this very uh, tricky question, so how important is climate, um, there was a process I was part of that was led by Stanford University with a paper that was published in, in June, bringing together all the different sides in, in this debate and trying to find some consensus on how much does climate change or does climate matter for current societies and what do we expect for the future? And overall, across these experts, um, based on what we know uh, today, uh, there was this acknowledgement, yes, climate rather increases than decreases the risk of armed conflict, but it's not uh, extremely important. So it is rather has a modest impact uh, on the risk of armed conflict as we see in current societies. So we, we really need to focus on these particular vulnerable subsets or uh, focus areas to see that there is, uh, there is some kind of relationship. Does this mean I'm standing here and saying this is a futile effort? <laughs> it's not. I think uh, given uh, also what Professor Edenhofer has said, uh, we're, we're concerned not only what climate does to societies today, but also what the future may bring. And I think uh, here we need to consider all these important effects that we will see of climate change in terms of migration, sea level rise, and factors that we cannot study in the past, but that may await us in the future. And I also think that for the UN in particular, uh, monitoring these particular situations that I've just talked about, where we have fragility due to low development, due to cleavages, um, there is an important lessons to be learned in terms of conflict prevention to both identify better the mechanisms for how climate may relate to armed conflict, but also um, to, to address it in a preventive way. And lastly, um, I would like to echo uh, what Professor Ernova said in terms of the importance of also uh, acknowledging the link from climate policies to, uh, to armed conflict. And here um, we heard about geopolitical tensions, but I would also like to emphasize the very strong linkage that we see uh, in the literature on the causes of armed conflict, civil wars or uh, internal armed conflict, where we, uh, where we see that it's clearly the low developing countries or the middle developing countries where we have oil production, that the, these are the countries that are very, uh, at very, very high risk of war. So I think if we think about uh, a future where we overcome the challenges in terms of uh, diversifying the energy sector, the, the energy um, production, and where we, we might potentially also be able to reduce some of the resource curses that we see internally that are very clearly and actually much more strongly uh, visible in the scientific literature on the causes of armed conflict. With that, I'd like to... Thank you very much. And uh, it goes to Karlheinz Kamp, who, um, as I said earlier, um, is a classic security expert. He uh, recently uh, retired uh, as president of the so-called Federal Academy for Security Policy. The Germans among you may know this institution as the Bundesakademie für Sicherheitspolitik, or, or BAX uh, in its shorter form. And, and before that, uh, Karl-Heinz Kamp served for a good number of years in Rome 
with the NATO Defense College. So he has he comes from a background of uh, uh, security and defense, and is now currently uh, working. And this is really quite new. For just a few weeks ago, he joined the um, Defense Department, Defense Ministry here in Berlin, where. I don't know exactly what his title is, but he's sort of the senior strategist, in my view. You have the floor. I always have to adapt the technology to normal size when I speak. Um, since I was in Rome for six years, for the first time in my life, I was of normal size. So I, even could, I could even reach the hand straps in the bus. It was a completely new experience. Thank you very much. It's indeed a very timely uh, debate because, interestingly enough, we have, although we are discussing about climate for so many years, climate and security was not well understood for a long time. Yes, there were some rough ideas of that, yes, if we have raising ocean levels, that this will affect uh, already unstable countries somehow, but whether this has really military implications, um, no one, no one really thought about, and it was mostly discussed on an ecological uh, angle, which means the military, many military, were smiling at it, and was was a little bit belittling this entire thing. Um, and the reason is simple, because military are planners, and they are looking for linear threats with which they can deal with linear answers like force planning and so on. Um, so let me make um, three points tonight. First, some general remarks on the connection between the defense and military aspects and climate and security. Uh, second, what does NATO about this? Because NATO is our basic reference for security. And then uh, thirdly, what does Germany uh, in that respect? Once again, always from the perspective of the Ministry of Defense. Um, to start with the general remarks, interestingly enough, the first one who were not belittling and smiling at the climate issue were U.S. military, was the Pentagon. Because the Pentagon realized that their defense planning changes when the climate changes, which means the plans for water supply of troops in their missions abroad changed completely. Plans for emergency, emergency planning changed completely under extreme weather conditions. Uh, disaster relief operations had to be planned in other countries. So it's interesting today that the Pentagon is still strongly focusing on climate, although President Trump explicitly forbid every ministry to talk about climate change. It is really bizarre, but they have to deal with it because it is their, it is their job. Um, it took the European military a while to understand how close the interconnections between security and uh, climate are, of course, as it has been said before, there are no direct links between a certain crisis and the climate, but indirect ones, of course. The Arab Spring had to do with climate change because it started with rising bread prices due to bad harvest. Uh, of course, the Syria crisis had to do with climate because due to, uh, due to, uh, due to droughts in 07, 08, 09, uh, many thousands of peasants moved into the cities, and that raised the tensions there. So we have, in general, a more awareness in Europe and also in Germany over the recent years, which means we understand the, the connections between climate and security much better. And I think there are only four basic ones. The first one is climate is a threat multiplier, which means it's a no-brainer that regional crises 
um, uh, get worse, that, that, that all kind of conflicts get worse by climate uh, effects, be it in Africa or in, e uh, or in Asia. There was a New York Times article two or three weeks ago that large parts of Vietnam, that cities like Bangkok, uh, cities like Shanghai and Mumbai will almost disappear because of raising uh, level of oceans. You cannot build the dikes quickly enough around entire uh, countries, which means some 150 million people will be affected until 2040, 2050. Um, second point, of course, climate is an obstacle for military operations. You have to plan and you have to fight differently under, um, uh, under extreme weather uh, conditions. You cannot overflight permanently. You, um, have to put, you have to put sand filters on your helicopters, which means they don't fly that long anymore. All these things you have to take into account. But climate can also be a force multiplier. It can easen, uh, or it can, it can make your operations easier. If we are talking about melting pole caps, and if we are talking about that there is a passage, a ship passage over the Arctic, then you, whoever the you is, has a different range in its military operations. Uh, and four, it also has political implications, not always negative, because it forces countries to cooperate. For instance, if we talk about ships driving through the Arctic, if we have a catastrophe there, the ship gets broken, whatever, only Russia has enough icebreakers. So we have to deal with Russia to find a compromise to get these things done. Second point, NATO. Um, what does NATO uh, do specifically with regard to climate? And also there, the change happened in the last two or three uh, years, and it, uh, we even have a we have a department, a NATO directorate, the New Challenges Director or the New Challenges Division, as it's called, which deals with these issues. And they do also basically four things. First, they increased their strategic awareness and analyses. Just see what's going on, which developments are, and what does it mean for the entire uh, alliance. Uh, second point: consequences management. It's interesting that NATO created the NATO Response Force, which was a force to react very quickly on a military crisis, be it in Russia or elsewhere. This NATO Response Force had been employed only twice, once in the earthquake in Pakistan and the second time at the, uh, uh, at the Hurricane Katrina. So completely non-military operations where NATO did some uh, emergency management help. Um, operational planning. NATO does a different operational planning because of all the things I mentioned uh, before, because uh, certain weather conditions make certain military op operations impossible. And you have to know this in advance, not to be surprised. Uh, and NATO, even interestingly enough, has a scientific cooperation with climate institutions. There is ENFSEC, Environment Security, is an institution organized by the UN, by NATO, and by the OSCE to do exchange on what do we know about the the connex between military and security. Lastly, Germany, what does Germany do? Also here, also in the Ministry of Defense, since two or three years, the people woke up and realized that it has uh, different implications. Also to mention five, first, defense planning. We have an institution called the Planungsamt, the Planning Office, Defense Planning Office, uh, which has to plan differently because we, the political level, might have to choose 
whether uh, we use our armed forces for a crisis abroad somewhere or we, uh, or we use, this, use it for any flooding event in Germany or the Balkan Kefir or whatever we have uh, where you also need the military uh, for or forest fires or uh, whatever. So you have to plan this in advance. Second, um, logistic. In the meantime, the military goes green. That sounds funny, as if they would really care about uh, having tanks that, uh, that consume less fuel. Yes, it is important. Because if you do an operation abroad and you have to transport fuel 6,500 kilometers to Afghanistan, it makes a difference when, the, when you have equipment that consumes less uh, fuel or less water or all the things you need uh, there. Procurement. We buy different technology. We buy weapon systems. We buy support systems which can function under different climate conditions. Education and training. You have to make your soldiers aware of the fact that they have to plan and to operate under different climate uh, conditions. And lastly, uh, international cooperation. There is the International uh, Military Council on Climate and, uh, and Security, where the German Defense Ministry is a part of. So you see, over the last two or three years, a number of things changed significantly, and no one is actually smiling at the climate and security issue anymore. Thank you very much. All right, this is great. We have uh, a good half hour. Before I open this to uh, uh, questions, uh, let me go back to Professor Edenhofer and, and uh, try to ask you the following question. The um, incoming president of the EU Commission, uh, which hopes to um, uh, be inaugurated on the 1st of December, uh, the incoming president is, of course, a former German defense minister. Uh, so she, let's assume, uh, is fully aware of the Texas and of the issues that um, we've just been um, uh, exposed to. So if you were uh, called upon to tell her what next steps she should take in her new capacity as president of the EU Commission, would you tell her that the EU has so far failed to address this challenge, or would you say that you are on the right path? Um, uh, and how, how revolutionary would be the suggestions that you would give to her if the issue is to take Europe on climate change and security where Europe should be four, five, or ten years from now? I had a meeting with Ursula von der Leyen last week, and, and therefore I, I cannot tell you what I recommended here. Um, but, but let me, first of all, uh, for the new incoming president, uh, she has basically two uh, focus themes. The first one is indeed the Green Deal, so she called it the Green Deal, and the second one is digitalization. So that's, that's the, the two top priorities, and this is extremely encouraging. <clears throat> the second aspect is I'm, I'm quite confident that the EU will announce uh, a target which is called carbon neutrality by 2050, probably 
or there's some likelihood that they will increase even the, the goals for the effort sharing regulation. So in terms of goals, that's quite good. And this will put additional pressure on EU member states. And uh, so the main, the main problem is in, in Europe in general, but in Germany in particular, we are very, very good in, in setting goals, and we, we miss the goal, then we, we even take a more ambitious goal in the far distant future. <laughs> so that's a little bit the German style, how to do climate policy, and I recommend to change this slightly. Uh, I would say we should focus a little bit more on instruments instead of, of setting goals, instruments which really helps us to do this. And there is basically um, an idea which is now on the table, and let's see how this can be implemented. And the idea is a a very, very um, demanding one, which basically means uh, that uh, at the European scale we should set up uh, over the next decade a, an emissions trading scheme which uh, consists of all the relevant sectors. This will lead to, uh, to increasing carbon prices in Europe and this will basically accelerate the coal phase out in particular in Germany. So from my point of view, the whole, the, whole, the whole pressure, the whole dynamics will come from the European level. And this is basically good for us in Germany because we are stuck in, a, in, in the middle of a, uh, I have to say, a very disappointing and a very terrible climate package. But this, the European level, can help us to overcome this situation. And, and therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident something will happen, and there are two reasons. The first is, obviously, the incoming president has a very good relationship with the Eastern European countries, in particular with Poland. Without Poland, we cannot do this. But there are some interesting signs from Poland. And there, the second is Franz Timmermans. He is also the, he's the, the vice president. He, he, he's responsible for implementing the whole Green Deal. And, and therefore, I'm, 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 I'm quite confident that, that something uh, interesting, something dynamic will, 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 uh, will be implemented. And the only thing is, and I think it's a good thing, um, Germany should accept that we are no longer the front runner in this game. Uh, we are basically the follower, and we should be a little bit more modest, a little bit more... Uh, in, a, in, a more, yeah, in, a, in a more modest attitude and we should stop that game uh, missing targets and then define the next target which is more ambitious but it is then after 2200 so that's not, not the game we should play again. Very good. Um, uh, thank you. Any, any comments from either one of you on this? If, if not, uh, uh, here's how we will do this. I would... I will propose to call maybe on two or three, and if you would be kind enough to identify yourself uh, before you ask your question or offer the, your comment, and, and then please also tell us whether your question is directed at the entire panel or just to one of the panel members that makes it easier for us to handle this up front. And so we'll take it in bunches of three, and uh, we'll start with the gentleman here in row two. Just a second, the microphone will come. I'm looking in particular for members of the Hertie oh. student body, and I see a few. You're one of them. I'm I not, think. But no? Okay. no, where are you from? Um, my name is Imre. I study European studies at the European University of Vietrina in Frankfurt, or oh, the small that's, one. That's almost yeah. as good as Hertie. <laughs> 
we'll get to that later. Um, my question's for all three panelists, and it starts with a small comment. Um, I mean, it's lovely to talk about all of these climate goals. None of them are going to be met. And the brutal fact of the matter is that global temperatures will rise beyond 2%, beyond the, the 2 Celsius that we've target we've set. And not for lack of trying, especially on Europe's part, but the fact of the matter is that right now, as reported in the Handelsblatt, 1,400 new uh, coal power stations are being built around the world. So coming to my question, when the effects of climate change really are start, will start to be felt, my worry is that this whole topic is going to descend into a blame game. And not only small countries, but great countries will, be, will start accusing each other of that respective country having had a greater contribution to climate change, and therefore X or Y should happen. So my question is, is this, is this likely to increase, is this, does this increase the likelihood of great power conflict? Good question. Uh, students, where are students? There's one, are you a student back there? No? Then we go to the gentleman back against the wall. The panel can't even see you. Can yes, you uh, maybe step up here a little uh, bit? So I have a, a question directed towards uh, Mr. Kamp. Um, specifically, uh, do you agree with the analysis of movement from third generation to fourth generation warfare? So away from heavy equipment towards more mobile units, digitalized warfare, special forces warfare. And um, if you agree with this analysis or if you have a different analysis, do you think it will affect the definition of acts of war and kind of um, what it is to change into somebody else's border, i.e. drone attacks? Okay, uh, and where's the third one? Uh, there is a lady here in the middle somewhere. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Stephanie Mavraku. I'm a MIA student at the Hertie School. Good. So I think, <laughs> I think this discussion has shown and other discussions around climate fragility have shown that climate change acts as a threat multiplier. Um, and I think that this has really been seen in the Lake Chad region in particular where Boko Haram um, and also ISIS West Africa have really undermined already fragile um, livelihoods. So my question is, what can we do in terms of political and social and economic policies to protect those dynamics? Because already in the Lake Chad region, the actual problem is not as much climate change, but the acts of the military. So when there are droughts, people would normally move, but the military have imposed moving restrictions on those people. When uh, a crop fails, people would normally switch to another crop, such as um, red pepper. But the military in, the, in that region as well have imposed military restrictions on certain crops, such as red pepper. So then those people are basically pushed into the hands of ISIS West Africa or Boko Haram. So my question is, what policies can we use um, to stop this vicious circle of climate change and terrorism? Thank you, another really great question. Maybe what we'll do is we'll do this in reverse and start with you, Nina, maybe addressing this particular question and then go
go back uh, in reverse, reverse order so that Professor Edenhofer is the last one. Thanks a lot. So I think this is a very relevant question, what to do in, in Lake Chat um, and how to how to address this vicious circle. And I think what it, what it shows is really that um, conflict itself is an important driver of vulnerability to climate change. So I think whatever the United Nations and other actors can do to uh, resolve conflict or to, to send peacekeepers and to, to, to address the security issues will also be beneficial uh, for addressing climate change in the long term. I think more concretely, it's it's very difficult to to say, but there are different actors engaging in trying to to build resilience in these areas. But I I think kind of a one fits all uh, approach is is probably uh, is probably difficult. But but the acknowledgement of the general uh, security measures as reducing climate vulnerability, I think, uh, is very well illustrated by this case. Uh, Nina, can I push you on this one a little bit? We have had, over the years, a lot of debate in the uh, context of the UN Security Council. Is climate a threat to international peace and security? So, if I'm not mistaken, you would argue, sure it is. Uh, but there are powers that um, have taken a different view, which has made it, well, let's put it diplomatically, really hard uh, to put these issues you know, fully and squarely on the agenda of the Security Council. Yes, so I think this is a tricky question, so how to address this. I think there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of agencies in the UN that, that should more actively work with climate insecurity and work together in this. And I think the UN has uh, already implemented a, a climate security mechanism as, as a kind of pilot to, to bring together these actors. I think, that, for example, the Lake Chad uh, illustrates that actors that work with, with food, for example, uh, in fragile crisis like the, the FAO um, or the World Food Programme, they also need to, to acknowledge potential impacts uh, on conflict and, and, and these, these situations. So I think we're already seeing um, by the efforts from Sweden, for example, but also from, from Germany, um, that there is something happening in the UN and they are acknowledging that with this mechanism that they're implementing. Okay. Uh, Karl-Heinz Kamp. Well, there was one question uh, to me directed on the issue of third or fourth generation warfare, which is not particularly a climate issue, but a general one. Um, I think we should be careful with this planning of new scenarios, okay? We plan for the next way of how to fight a conflict because we were a couple of times very not, not wrong, but we had to change really quickly. If you recall, after 9-1-1, the, for the military experts, the, uh, the technical term was coined, counterinsurgency. So very quick operations uh, in far regions. You had, to have my, uh, you had to have mobile forces, light forces. And then we had 2014, and back we are in the Article 5 world, where we have to defend allies' territory. So once again, the planners changed the entire the entire planning system. So, of course, what, we'll, uh, what we will have is technical progress. And this means, yes, of course, you have a digitalization, of course, you have drones. But the problem is that you can be as fourth generation as you like. You might have a conflict against a first generation opponent. Um, in Africa and Asia or terrorist organizations where you can use your, uh, your gadgets, but at the end of the day, 
um, it, it does not replace you from doing the classical military business. Second question was the point on is there a is there danger of great power conflict due to climate? Not sure. I'm, I have the feeling that particularly among the great powers or those who believe that they are, um, there is a certain awareness. If you, for instance, realize that in India some five or six percent of the households have an air conditioning, which means 40, uh, 94 have none. If they would increase the level of air conditioning machines as we have today, it would be a catastrophe. So India thinks of other technologies because they know it doesn't work that way. They will just collapse. Uh, in China, the awareness for the ecological problems there is tremendous among the government because it can uh, create uproar. And the last thing the government wants is a regime change, and it can lead to this. So there is a lot of, a lot of awareness. Sometimes the problems are just bigger than they can solve, like, for instance, the issue with the, with the air conditionings in India. Okay. Professor Edno. Yeah, I would like to respond to the, the question on, um, on the coal issue. Now, first of all, you are right. Uh, so basically, the existing and the planned coal-fired plants around the globe would produce accumulative roughly 330 gigatons CO2. And if you take into account, we are only allowed at a worldwide scale, let's say 800 gigatons for a two degree target. So basically roughly half would already be absorbed by coal alone. And, and I am the one, I have to say, uh, over the last years, talking again and again about this coal renaissance around the globe. And uh, still, we are in the middle of this coal renaissance. We are not in the middle of a renewable energy age. We are in the middle of a coal renaissance. That said, um, I would like to argue here, it is absolutely, I would say, dangerous to say, give up the two-degree target or the two-degree uh, 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 cadre. To be honest, people who do this don't know what they are talking about. Because this is, this is already, we are in a range which is unprecedented for the, last, for the, whole, for the whole Holocene. We have no, no historical uh, image. What does this mean? In what kind of world we would live even with a two-degree uh, 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 constraint? Therefore, I would say what we, what we absolutely need is we have... First of all, and, and this is also a matter of fact, at a worldwide scale, we basically have an oversupply of fossil fuel resources. Given the limiting amount of carbon which we can release into the atmosphere, we have an oversupply. And this basically means the resource prices will remain very low. So, and therefore, it is so important, so important, what Europe and China will do in the next decade. Because Europe and China, they can basically change the whole course. First, in Europe. When Europe is in a position that we really implement a scheme at the European scale for carbon pricing and we show the whole world that we can phase out coal, that would be, from my point of view, a huge step forward, number one. Secondly, China, I fully agree with you. If you went to the Chinese Academy of Science, I never heard in China... In an, in an official voice, a climate skeptic, I have to say. Germany has much more climate skeptics than China has, and, and they are very much concerned about this issue. 
China is now implementing at a national scale a European emissions <coughs> trading scheme. China is running with us scenarios where they are talking about peaking coal in the next, let's say, in the next five, next ten years. Of course, this is very, very demanding, but China is very, very aware of the climate impacts on the other hand, and they are basically, they are looking for allies to, to, to reduce emissions. So think about for a while, so you are quite pessimistic, and I share your pessimism, but think for a while, in the next decade, we could agree between the European Union and China on a reasonable minimum price on carbon, which basically would phase out coal, we would do something to include other countries, and Donald Trump, to be honest, I don't think Donald Trump will reign the US forever. So we have some hope here. Uh, if, if these three powerful regions will do such a thing, and in the Republican Party people are talking also about carbon taxation, about carbon pricing, so then basically a lot of other countries will follow. This will be really a tough ride over the next decade, but that's absolutely worthwhile. And I would prefer such a pathway and such a political investment instead saying, ah, oh, come on, uh, we, we, cannot, uh, we, we cannot achieve or we cannot limit the increase of global mean temperature around two degrees. Let's think about other things. This is really, and this can only be done with cooperation. And the last thing what I would like to say is, like it or not, the UNFCC is a terrible institution, but it is a functioning multilateral institution. And multilateralism in the climate issue hasn't been collapsed despite of the fact that the US withdraw its participation. And this is a quite remarkable result. It's weak, it's too slow. I can uh, continue to blame this terrible institution. I served as a co-chair of IPC within the UN for eight years. I'm completely fed up, and so I could endless anecdotes. But in the end, I would say this multilateral institution worked so far, and, and let's make this institution stronger in the next few years. Great. We have uh, time for, I'm sure, three or four more questions. So let's start with the young lady over here. Good evening. My name is Chloe, and I study environmental governance in Freiburg, Germany. Um, I would like. We have started exploratory projects um, that are called Euromatics, I believe, in Italy, for instance, where we involve the civilians and the civil society through digital tools in the prevention and in exercises to build up the, the local capacity to respond to climate uh, hazards. And since I do not believe that uh, climate security should be contained to the scientific or politics or military um, communities, I would like to ask you what role should you, would you like to see the civil society take in this issue and how can we involve them? Thank you. Hi, uh, Sean. I'm a recent graduate from the Hergy School. Um, I wanted to kind of comment about on bringing in like a urbanization and public health aspect to this. If we take security as um, maintaining the health and livelihoods of, of people, um, we have to talk about not just people moving across borders, but you know, you mentioned that um, that people moving within within the countries into urban centers, um, with you know more and more people go, moving into urban centers, but I think by 2050 it's supposed to be 60% of the world's population will live in an urban area. Um, this increases likelihoods for pandemics, which obviously bring a, you know, that's a trans-border issue um, and a security level, so I just wondered if someone could speak to that. All right, uh, and then let's go to back 
to yeah to the lady over there. Um, hello, my name is Leila. I'm a student in the Potsdam University. I'm doing the international relations, and my question is directed to Professor Edenhofer. Um, you mentioned that one of the implications um, of the climate policy would be rising competitiveness of the industrialized states comparing to the developing countries. But the competitiveness itself is a big issue in the industrialized countries themselves. Um, it, together with the issue of carbon leakage, it's usually used by lobbying in energy sector as a main argument for, let's say, setting the tax rate too low or overcompensating the free allowances in the EU ETS system. So what do you think are the most effective instruments to deal with such kind of overcompensation? That would be great. Okay, one more. Yes, please, here. Good evening. Um, I'm Stephanie Wesch with the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. And um, yes, hello. <laughs> um, I have a question for Ms. van Uxkul. Um, I followed some of your work, um, and I would like to know what is your opinion on, uh, in particular, the um, Sahel, farmer herder violence. Can we link that? Um, is there a way to link that to uh, um, recruitment into extremist groups? And what role do you think identity plays? Um, I just got back from Burkina Faso talking to Fulani, and um, what I found is that climate change or climate variability um, not only takes away people's livelihoods when you talk about pastoralists, but it takes away their identity because they're so closely linked to pastoralism and to their animals. And so what implications does that have for recruitment then? Thank you. Okay. Uh that's a good bunch of questions. Um, who would like to go first? Fangen wir doch mal mit Ihnen an, Kamp. Und dann gehen wir so rüber. Oh, thank you. Um, I, there are basically only two, two points I want to take off. On the first one is that um, many of the questions here were uh, reasoning to the preemption. What can we do to prevent further raise of the climate. From the military point of view, uh, mostly, I mean, the military does hardly anything in that respect with regard to preemption and prevention. They do mostly consequences management. So they have to deal, they have to operate under the conditions. Um, and this is why, okay, we have now a, there's a new rule among all the ministries that they have to reduce their, or they have to be carbon neutral. So we have a huge list now in the Ministry of Defense on how many flights do we have and how can we reduce the flights. But this is minor things. This is not, this is not changing the fate of the world. Um, second point, since someone was asking what is the, the, uh, the implication on the civil society, um, let me take a curve from the military part of civil society. To accept that all these things we were talking about, protection, operating under different, uh, under different climate conditions with military forces, cost money. Uh, and this is why we have to spend more for security in general, which means police and secret services and so on, and for the military. And we have this terrible debate in Germany, and now I really become polemic. We have this terrible debate in Germany about the 2%, which is so silly because there are two wrong arguments in it. The first one is the military want their shiny weapon systems. No, they don't. They want to have the things they need to operate. And if we had a last a major, a major exercise, military exercise in Norway, 
where those German soldiers taking part in this exercise had to borrow their coats from those soldiers who were on vacations because we didn't have enough. So we are talking about the basic things to make military personnel operate under different conditions. And second point is because we always hear, uh, oh yes, if Germany would have 2%, then we would spend so and so many millions and that would be absolutely incredible. And when I hear parliamentarians say this, I ask them, let me understand, what is 2%? 2% is 2 cent of a euro, right? And you want to explain to other allies that the wealthiest country in Europe is neither willing nor able to spend 2 cent of a euro for the security of those men and women they sent into harm's way, be it in different op op operations under climate, uh, extreme climate conditions, and so on and so forth. So uh, this is also a part of the of the society accepting the consequence of the climate change. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, two remarks or two questions. The first on, on civil society. I, first of all, it's, it's, it goes without saying that civil society is enormously important because if you want to influence the politicians, you have to influence the civil society, otherwise you cannot succeed. Fridays for Future, so I, I only mentioned in my remark the European effort sharing regulation, but, but together with Fridays for Future, though they did this and, and with the hot summers, so this has changed the attitude of, of many, many policymakers. There is no doubt about this. I would argue that the most important thing is that the civil society understands much better um, what, what is at stake and, and what kind of policy instruments we are implementing. And, to be honest, my feeling was in the debate we had over the last nine months in, in Germany, the civil society was much, at average, much better educated, much better informed than, than the, uh, the average parliamentarian. So uh, we, did, we did an analysis, we haven't published this, but uh, on, on the tweets among the, uh, uh, on the parliamentarians in Germany. And basically they start to debate carbon pricing at a stage where basically all the decision has been already made, right? So in that sense, I would say educating and the, the civil society discussing with them, involve them, is crucial. I'm not an expert in this, but, but my feeling is this is essential because otherwise politicians will always hide behind the civil society. And I can only respond with an anecdote. I had a, a, a panel discussion with a very, very mm -hmm. important and a very powerful politician. And I... I talked about carbon pricing, and he said to me, "Look, listen. Uh, this is this is a typical statement from these uh, professors in Germany. They have strange ideas, mm -hmm. but nobody in this room believes that carbon pricing is feasible, and nobody wants that. Stop. I am a politician. I know what I, I talk about. You are a professor. You have no idea about real life. So that's after he said this." So 20 people in the room, it was like filled with uh, 20 people in the room said, we would, like to, we would like to let you know that we want a carbon price. 20 people. So that was basically a, a very nice thing. And this shows basically civil society is meanwhile much better informed than at least, not all, but many parliamentarians. And, and, and what we have to do is we have to involve civil society and, and I think think carefully how to facilitate a public debate in a much more effective way. On competitiveness issues. So you argue, or your remark was 
that basically we are doing a lot in the industrialized countries on competitiveness issues. We allocate free allowances and basically the competitiveness issues basically is one reason why the carbon prices in, in Europe are so low and, and, and so on. Of course, you are, you are right uh, with that, but but this is this is only a, a tiny part of uh, of the industry, and the most important argument I cannot elaborate. But but we did this together with the German Economic Advisory Council. Carbon pricing in the transport sector, in the heating sector, in the building sector, is not at all an issue of competitiveness. It's not an issue of competitiveness. And the, the Economic Advisory Council in Germany is not known as a, a club of climate activists, right? The issue is, from my point of view, the issue is, it's a distributional issue. Because it is true that the poor households are impacted by high carbon prices over proportionally in carbon prices in economic sense is regressive in the sense that basically it impacts the low-income households more than, than, than the rich households. This is a very, very, a very important issue. And when I had discussions over the last nine months with policymakers, they came always with this argument, we cannot do anything meaningful, uh, we cannot do anything uh, courageous because of the, of, the social con of the social distributional concerns. We come up with a few proposals, reducing the power tax, financing the feed-in tariff system with the revenues of... Uh, of, of, the, of, of, of carbon pricing, including also to design a climate dividend. All of these proposals have been outright rejected in the climate package. What they did is basically, it is the middle class is paying the bill, the rich are basically not involved in the financing the climate packages, and the very poor households are a, a little bit relieved. So that, that's what, what, what they did. And when I discussed with the politicians, I thought basically the poor households in Germany have such a powerful group protecting them from climate policy, but obviously this is, was not the case. So in that sense, I would say this is something which we should show uh, worldwide that we can deal with these distributional concerns. But in the last package we have uh, approved, we failed to do this. I hope in the future we can fix that because that would be very, very important for other countries. But the competitiveness issues is not a big issue. Great. Lina, your last. Um, thanks a lot. So I want to respond to, to both the, the point on health. I think that was important um, because it, it raises the, the point that I think that was made by the IPCC in the last report that we're talking about security here and, and geopolitical questions and war, but human security, kind of well-being and health issues are, are are very clearly linked to, to climate as well, and in, I think in, in the terms of in terms of health even even more closely. Um, the second point was on the uh, on the Sahel region. I think that is very relevant for two for two reasons. Uh, first, because the the pastoralists and the farmers in the Sahel are always used as one example where we have the kind of the climate canaries. And when you look clo more closely into this, you see that the People have cooperated there over scarce resources over over centuries, and and they are kind of adapting to to this um, to this situation. But on the other hand, um, climate change, of course, makes makes um, problems uh, more um, difficult. There, and um, we also see that where we then have all these political and governance uh, problems in place that may also lead to conflict. And um, 
it's, your question is also important uh, in another regard because um, we always look into climate as, and economic aspects. So climate linking to economic shocks, to the livelihood of, of local farmers. But it is not only uh, poverty that is linked to recruitment, but we also see like in, this, in the literature and kind of explaining who actually joins these terrorist groups. It's not only the ones that are poor, but uh, recruitment to these armed groups also has another social function. So I think identity questions are, are truly important to also, um, to also acknowledge in this debate. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we are, we've actually reached almost exactly our, uh, our goal point, our goal point and I would like to propose that the first thing we now need to do is thank all three panelists. I think this was a really good and diverse discussion. So let's give the man. Those of you who have been to these events before will be aware that uh, the Hertie School will not uh, allow you to go unnourished, uh, so there will be something to drink and maybe also something to eat outside in the in the foyer in the lobby. Um, and uh, I hope the discussion about um, climate change and security will continue um, later tonight as we move out. And and I think on behalf of the Center on International Security Policy and the Hertie School, I can promise that we will keep this item on our agenda, both in terms of academic research at work, but also in terms of the outreach effort uh, of, of which this is a part tonight. So thank you all for coming. Good night. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.